All right, thank you everyone for coming. Uh, I'd first like to thank the Labor and Employment Law Program here at Virginia Law and our faculty advisor, Rick Verkirke, the entire Bell Board, Ivy Provisions, and also our sponsor, Jackson Lewis. How's it going? Good. Really good. Does this thing work on Good. Good. Mr. Smith? Should I call you Mr. Smith? You can call me D. D? Sometimes there's worse names. Alright, we'll, we'll still with D. Yeah, let's just stick with D. So D, you, uh, you graduated from UVA Law in 1989. Can you tell me a little bit about your time here? Um, this is not where I went to law school, of course, but uh, uh, yeah, the, the sheer beauty of this law school, everyone like that, is staggering. Uh, I think I went to the version of this law school that looked a little bit like my senior high school. Um, so, it, uh, you know, my time here was fantastic. Uh, I've been to see Alex Johnson for a little while, who uh, I never took a class on, but uh, was always our unofficial advisor while I was here. Um, but, you know, without sounding too gushy, um, I really love this place. And um, uh, to no small measure, UVA changed my life. Um, met my wife here, uh, got married here, um, was still married, which uh, I don't know why she stayed with me. <laughs> she's also a UVA graduate of comp school, so she's the smartest of the family. Um, and, and, uh, and I'm not kidding, my kids honestly say that she's a smart one. Um, but there, there are a few things that uh, I can ever look to, both professionally and uh, from a maturity standpoint. Well, that's. Stagger. How about this? Can you hear me? Okay, we're done with this. So uh, this is the first piece of technology. See you later. So well, that just feels bad, right? Um, but, but there's very few things, both you know, from a professional standpoint and a um, um, maturity standpoint, that, that I can. Uh, look at it, not see uh, a major influence by this university and the people that uh, uh, I went to school. So, um, uh, how many here are, uh, are third years graduating soon? Awesome, awesome. I, I will see you in May. I'm sure in various states of sobriety. <laughs> while I'm speaking, uh, please no jeering. Uh, I'm fine if you throw things, but uh, just no jeering. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Invited back, you know, to speak of graduation is uh, this way. I didn't think that sitting there a few years ago that I would ever be invited back for a commencement speech, but um, it has been a little bit terrifying because uh, uh, I remember all of the words from my graduation. <laughs> <laughs> Someone asked me, Well, do you remember who it was? No. Do you remember what they said? And uh, are you sure we had one? Um, so it, it'll, it'll be fun. Did you, uh, did you play softball? I did. I did. Um, some would say too much. Uh, but uh, the defining moments of my, my North Brown softball experience uh, for a while, that was the headlight of, of my uh, resume. Um, oddly, employers weren't too thrilled to see that up top. But, you know, North Brown softball, man. Well, were you interested in labor law, employment law while you're here? What do you want the answer to be? Uh, for anyone who's an aspiring person who wants to go into anything related to my job, I'll just get it out of the way right now. I did not take sports law, uh, did not take antitrust law, did not take labor law. 
Um, there we go. There we go. <laughs> so, um, what, did, what did you envision yourself doing? Uh, hopefully being gameplay important. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, when I was here, you know, it was the most late, late days. And, um, you know, my only thought was uh, I knew I wanted to be a prosecutor. And uh, I, had, uh, thankfully, through the moot court program here, actually, um, that linked my interest to, to be a prosecutor. And, uh, you know, for, for those of you who are first years, uh, my first year experience was, you know, stressful as it is. And, you know, you want to make sure that you actually move on to your second year. Uh, I had a job lined up at a uh, small firm in Northern Virginia for the summer. And literally, I'm going to say about a month before school ended, they called and they said, hey, by the way, we're cutting back. We're not going to be able to offer you a summer job, which, you know, everybody here now knows.
boutique firm for about a year and a half. Um, out of the blue, the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, had budget money. They were only hiring five people. And um, I was that hired. And again, small world. A uh, guy named Brad Weintimer, who I, you know, I didn't know, but we were in exactly the same uh, class. You know, we were a graduate of 89. Oddly, we found out years later that our second semester, we had exactly the same class schedule and never met. <laughs> so I will leave that to your own devices of why we never met. But um, <laughs> study that's all I would say. Um, and uh, that's how we had a good friend of us. And uh, fast forward, uh, you know, it was about wedding, and I used to talk about my kids, and great career at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, I was there for uh, nine years. And then uh, during that time, Eric Holder became uh, my U.S. attorney when he went to the Department of Justice as the then Deputy Attorney General. I went with him. Um, and then from there, I uh, went to uh, Latham as a partner in 2000, 2001. Uh, I was at Latham for eight years uh, and then took uh, my practice group to Patton Boggs for uh, two years. And then uh, while I was working on the transition team for the Department of Justice for then-Senator and uh, now President, um, got a call from a search firm on my answering machine saying, yeah, we're putting together this book with about 300 people to be interviewed for the executive director of the NFL Players Association. And I was like, no, oh, it'll be a long number. So <laughs> um, I didn't call back um, for almost three weeks because it was like, yeah, I'm not a sports lawyer, not an agent, I've never been a player. Um, and for me, I was really thinking about um, really becoming the U.S. Attorney in D.C. at that point. And uh, they called back, and I was like, well, I'm, I'm sure you just got my name, but you probably have the wrong guy. I mean, I'm not a, I've just never done it. And they were like, nah, we think we have the right guy. And then, uh, of course, my wife saying, this is a complete I mean, I don't know what you're doing, but you're thinking. You know, you've always dreamed to be the U.S. Attorney in D.C. You're literally on the doorstep of, of that happening. Why are you doing this idiotic thing that you're never going to get picked for? Lesson about marriage, your greatest critic will always be your spouse. Uh, <laughs> uh, and obviously, they are right. And uh, it sort of started off as a large group of people that became a smaller group of people. And, that are really small group of people. Um, and I got elected in March of 2009. How do you think your experiences in private practice and at the U.S. Attorney's Office prepared you to be the NFL, or the executive director of the NFL? <coughs> um, you know, two things. One, I, I would even back it up to here. Um, you know, when I was here, it was sort of that burgeoning, and maybe tail end of the critical legal studies movement and, and uh, the law and econ movement. So it was fun actually being here when there was that kind of internal battle over the philosophy of law. And, and I believe that, I was a philosophy major in, in, in college. Um, uh, Johnson and I have played a lot of softball. But the beauty of looking at the law through a um, you know, philosophical, analytical idea of not just learning what the law is, but understanding what the influences are, 
um, how to employ sort of a critical analysis uh, to, to, to where the law came from and where you see it trending. You know, that was kind of the first time um, th that, that I was taught to apply theory to sort of everyday um, uh, legal issues. Um, so that was, that was nice because it, it allows you to come into a job like this and see things as they are, but also figure out how do you take something that's probably a little bit of square and antiquated and, and through pushing and pulling alter it to a, to a universe that um, is better. Uh, private practice is fantastic because it's, it was really the first time that a ridiculous level of expertise is demanded from you. And um, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the years that I spent in private practice were incredibly formative because a lot of it is expected. And I know that you know, going to a, a great school like this, a lot is demanded of you as a student. But the level of um, uh, of excellence that's demanded from you in private practice is staggering when you get there, and, and even staggering as part uh, when when I went there in 2001. Um, but also living with the fact that your decisions matter. I mean, you you know when you're an associate, okay, you're, I don't want to say you're a cop in real, you're kind of cop. <laughs> um, but but there's no look. Nobody here should be. Uh, and, and it shouldn't be demoralizing, but you know, your first four, few years of private practice, you're not exactly sitting, you know, at the board of GE advising the chairman on what their next move is. I mean, that's probably a couple of memos away. <laughs> Just a couple. Um, so you have this, you know, this, you know, and I, I considered it a luxury at the time, especially coming from the U.S. Attorney's Office, where. Okay, they demand your written work to be really, really well. They demand your analytical work to be really, really well. But, but you also have a little bit of a luxury that it's not going to be ultimately consequential. So you can dive into the philosophy. You can divide, you know, really dive into the meat of the law and pull those things apart. Um, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office was a tremendous opportunity because it's just you. It's just you. And, and, and you know, you're not really thrown into the fire, you're certainly thrown into the fire from the trial side. But you know, it's not until your third, fourth year that you're handling homicide cases or violent crime cases or murders. And and I love doing the fraud stuff and the terrorism stuff. But uh, you know, being a homicide prosecutor <laughs> and it's awesome. It's just awesome. And but you learn to live with you are a person of consequence. Um, you know, you bring the cases that you um, have have a um, you know belief that that you can prove a person's guilt. Um, you're a homicide prosecutor; somebody's dead. Um, you tend to meet people on the worst day of their lives, whether they're the victims or. Or, or, or the defendant or the family of the defendant, um, if you lose somebody that you believe has killed somebody, it's going to go back on the street. Yeah. So, you know, that, that positioning of, of constantly being um, in a uh, crucible of consequence teaches you a lot about, you know, your, your, your personal ability to handle pressure, 
um, leading a team of investigators, taking responsibility for your losses, taking responsibility for your wins. Um, and all of that you know, translates well into this job where um, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I'm not gonna lie. I got the best job the But but you know, the public nature of the job, you know, where we are um, uh, in, in the way in which media and and the advent or not even the advent anymore, the, the, the cycle of social media, um, <clears throat> it teaches you to remain a person of consequence as opposed to a person who's going to be driven by outside forces that for the most part don't matter. Sure. For those in the audience <coughs> Unfamiliar with labor law, could you explain? That's a lot. <laughs> well, for yourself and the people in the audience, could you explain a little bit about what the NFL Player Association, what it is, yeah. and what's its role in relationship with the league? Yeah, um, look, I mean, we're a labor union. And, and, you know, I know that, that typically people don't think of, of professional football players as either A, needing a union, or it being a real union, but um, here's the paradox. Uh, incredibly young men come out of college, um, they're drafted into a team, their average career is 3.5 years, the likelihood of injury is, is 100%. I mean, the, the National Football League's own injury data is that the injury rate in the National Football League is 100%. So imagine, you know, for the people who are about to graduate, all of you being drafted into a law firm, where there was a 100% chance that while you did the work, you were going to get hurt. And by the way, you're only going to do it for three years, and then you're going to be done. Do you want a union? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that union thing is kind of cool, right? So, you know, if, you, if the idea or the, again, the paradigm and, and the forces and rules of the paradigm are such, that now you have a union that you automatically belong to, and we can actually bargain for you for how long you work, what happens when you get hurt, um, your pension after three years, um, your ability to change teams, and having limits on what your employer can do to you, that sounds pretty good for for a union to chat, right? Sure. So and that's what we do. And, and what I've tried to do over the last six years is, is really get us away from this idea that this is an organization that's different and move it to this is an organization that's just like United Here or just like Lyuna um, or, or just like the Teamsters. Um, because we do exactly the same thing. I mean, you and I were talking over there, I mean, I know people, you know, especially sports writers, who it is a whole other discussion that we should just enjoy just for the sake of argument. Any sports writers here, by the way? Good, let's talk about it. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, if the, the problem with the way the media treats our union is our, the media treats both the NFL as the employer and the NFLPA as the union as part of the sports pack. I don't read sports writers. I mean, what they cover has virtually nothing to do with what I do 
on an everyday basis. I mean, none of them are talking about um, injury rates as it relates to a group of employees with a limited lifespan, right? They cover injury rates like the injury wire, you know, which is primarily there for people to place bets. So the way that they cover injuries, they cover injuries as a part of sport. I think about injuries as a necessary um, and, and foreseeable consequence of your employment contract. Um, I don't see the salary cap as a, does it go up, does it go down? I see the salary cap as um, employees and employ, uh, employers are working in a joint venture to generate revenue. The salary cap is a function of our share of revenue that we create. So, for the most part, when you know Peyton and I get together, or Drew Brees and I get together, yeah, you know, we're really not tossing the ball around, you know. <laughs> just, you know, and no, what what do, what do our players and, and, and guys like both Peyton and and um, uh, Drew care about? Well, yeah, it might be superstar quarterbacks, but for a guy like Drew Brees who dislocated his shoulder when he was in um, California. When California changes their workers' comp laws to bar a player from filing a historical workers' comp claim, does he care about that? Well, yeah, because he missed time because of an injury that he suffered from work. And you've got a group of employers like the NFL trying to take away his ability to get lifetime medical care for an injury that he suffered at work. Just like a guy who would work at Petco if he fell off a ladder and broke his back here in Virginia, he would get lifetime medical coverage for the injury that he suffered at work. When Peyton had his neck injury in Indiana, and Indiana considers you know, whether they're going to turn into a right-to-work state, his concern is, okay, I mean, I, you know, can he pay for the medical costs? Well, of course he can. But why should anybody pay out of their own pocket? for medical coverage for an injury that they suffered at work. So it's not really a question of whether an NFL player can afford to pay X cost. My real question and the challenge that I bring to our players, and sure as heck why we battle the NFL, is why are you going to treat this class of employees differently from employees writ large? The flip side of it would be everybody in this room is more likely, for the people who graduate, more likely to earn more than the $32,000 that the average man makes in America at your age, right? If, if the law were, well, if you get hurt at a law firm, you don't get medical coverage, would that make you happy? The lawyers would stand for that. <laughs> of course not. So what we see writ large is uh, last year alone we battled changes in the workers' comp law in California, North Carolina, Illinois, and, uh, uh, and uh, Louisiana, where there was special legislation offered by the National Football League just to bar football players from making recoveries under workers' comp. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, we've got a $10 billion, $11 billion a year entity. Um, 
the, the Louisiana case is especially egregious. You know, wonderful Tom Benson. Anybody who's a Saints fan? Are you a Tom Benson fan? Well, of course. Why? So last year in, in Louisiana during training, Tom Benson introduced a law uh, in that Rouge to take away the New Orleans Saints players' workers' confidence. And we were going to lose that vote until we flew in with our lobbyists and we got every New Orleans Saints player to get on a bus after training camp ended and all of those dudes drove from New Orleans to Baton Rouge and 70 players walked into the state house and said, well, if you're going to vote to take away our rights, yeah, do it while we're here. And then the guy, the legislators come out with their Saints jerseys. <laughs> well, of course we're not. Silly little law. No. The law died that day. But, but that's the battle that we're in because, um, you know, nobody should feel sorry for a football player. Um, um, but I do believe that, that the issue of workers' rights, especially now in America, is something that we either get our hands around and, and decide that we're going to protect, or five years from now, we'll be down a road where we'll never come back. Um, <coughs> that, what you're talking about with players going down to the legislature, are there other instances where there are laws that might affect not only the NFLPA, but other unions where the NFLPA works with those unions? Oh, absolutely. Maybe also other sports oh, unions? Yeah. I mean, I've been on, you know, we've led six, seven picket lines uh, since I've taken the job. I mean, the, the, the one that was the most fun was we picketed a Hyatt uh, hotel in Indianapolis during the Super Bowl uh, because they were making the maids um, make larger contributions to their own health care than, than union does. So, you know, the, there is a large um, and thankfully very strong uh, relationship, especially between Unite here, the hotel motel workers, um, the Teamsters, the AFL-CIO, I sit on the executive council of the AFL-CIO, because, you know, their battles are our battles. So if, if you are able to force a worker to make larger contributions um, for their own health care, um, that's not a, you know, that's not a main issue or a football player issue. That's a person who works for a issue. So I, I believe that, that our players and our unions should be on the front lines of all of these issues because the flip side of it, you know, everybody remembers, uh, but, you know, we were facing a lockout. We did get locked out in 2000, uh, 2011. Well, yeah, they locked out the football players from, from all of the games. And, and I don't mind pointing out that, for the most part, it was 32 white men who made the decision to lock out our players. What our sports writers never covered was if those games don't happen, who are the people who work in the stadiums? Yeah, some of them are football players and they're big, but most of the people, you know, when we're playing a football game, there's only 100 players on the field. There's far more uh, than 100 people serving the drinks, working at those bars, taking out the trash, keeping the lighting on, the police officers who show up to protect us. All of those people are people who don't belong to our union, but those are also people that those owners locked out. 
And frankly, they didn't give a crap about the people who worked in the stadiums or the first responders who protected us because they made a decision that it was better for those 32 to lock out the larger group, right? Doesn't sound fair to me. So do we fight that? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and we got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little fun. Oh, man, even more than sometimes. <laughs> so um, what are your thoughts on the Northwestern football team attempts to organize? Um, we were big, uh, big supporters, and, and we've been supporters of, uh, of uh, uh, the Northwestern athletes uh, from the day that they decided to seek this. So there was a tremendous uh, young man named Ramoki Huma uh, that led that, uh, uh, led that, that fight for the, the uh, players at Northwestern to organize. Ramoki was a former linebacker at, I believe, at US, uh, UCLA. Um, um, and has led this effort to, to unionize uh, college players. Tremendous young man at uh, the Northwestern named King Coulter, who was their quarterback, who spearheaded that. Um, uh, you know, you, you meet a guy like King Coulter, and you frankly want your boy to grow up to be like King Coulter. So, um, you know, I'm a big believer in it because, look, and don't get me wrong, my favorite time of the year is March Madness. I mean, I dig football, obviously, but March Madness is, you know, a month of athletes playing literally to the death. You know, I mean, it's some of the best sport you'll ever watch. It's also a multi-billion dollar industry on the back of a bunch of kids who don't get paid. So, I mean, I dig it as a, as a spectacle, but how many people remember uh, the player from Connecticut last year, Shabazz, you know, after they win that championship, he's in the locker room, they're interviewing him, and he pops up and says, well, you know, it's been great here in Connecticut, but there are all those days where we leave practice and, and we don't have anything to eat. Well, you know, fantastic moment for CBS Sports, right? <laughs> hey! <laughs> <laughs> right? So, you know, and, and I'll be honest, on the issue of whether college players get paid is a distraction. And, and that is a, you know, owner, school, NCAA-driven distraction of the issue. None of the Northwestern players wanted to get paid. What they wanted was an opportunity to organize so that they could um, negotiate with the school as a collective body instead of one player going up against the, universe, the Northwestern University. And their issues were, well, if we get hurt playing at Northwestern and I need medical care after I leave, we actually think it's an okay thing if Northwestern pays our medical care. And if we're a four-year scholarship athlete, and because we're playing sports, we don't have time to get our degrees, we want to be able to talk to Northwestern about, can we come back within the next two or three years and finish our degree? None of that has anything to do with players getting paid, but I kind of think those two things are the bare level things that I would want if my kid was a scholarship athlete at a, at a big time school. So the NFL obviously holds a very prominent place in American culture. 
how does the NFLPA respond to those who say <coughs> that it has an obligation to pursue social justice issues through the conduct policy? Well, I, I don't think that any social justice issues are, are effectuated through the conduct policy. I mean, that's ludicrous, right? I mean, the conduct policy involves a grand total of about six players a year. So if we were going to predicate um, the entire social consciousness of the National Football League on six players that get in trouble, that's stupid, right? What we want is our players to not only be um, athletes in their community, we want our players to be participants in their community. So, you know, when I can have an opinion about whether players from the St. Louis Rams um, um, want to do the hands-up signal when they come out of the tunnel or not. I have an opinion about that. But, but the one thing that I will tell you is those players did it because they felt they were a part of that community. So what would you rather have? A disciplinary system where at least the commissioner keeps getting overturned, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, or, or a system where we're actually facilitating our young men to be members of the communities that they play in. So do I like for our players to be involved in, in picketing hotels? Yeah. Do I want them involved in issues that, that they find important? Yeah. I mean, when Charles Woodson was in the state house in, in Wisconsin fighting um, you know, bills to strip union members of their rights. I dig that, not because I'm just a union guy. I dig that because a guy like Charles Woodson who doesn't have to be there thinks it's important. So, you know, again, the, the conduct policy um, is, is just a fight that we will have with the National Football League, not so much because we disagree with whether players get punished when they do something wrong, we disagree that the league wants to do it without collective bargaining, right? So again, flip it around. All of you are now drafted into your various law firms, and you and the managing partner are riding down the elevator one day, and he sees something that you've done that's wrong, and he decides, well, you know what? Okay, I'm gonna fire you. Well, is it his right to do? Absolutely. Would you want a fair system to deal with it? Absolutely. So, you know, the issue that we have with the, with the commissioner, and, and again, the same issue that he's had with <laughs> the former commissioner, um, that's a good issue, is um, fairness. And if a system is fair, we're fine. But if a system isn't fair, um, I'm not sure what we'll accomplish. So the contours of the conduct policy and social justice issues, those come up in collective bargaining? Well, I, I'll just leave that out. Social justice does not come up in collective bargaining. Um, I haven't met an owner who is interested in social justice. They're just not. Um, they're interested in shares of revenue. They're interested in you know, how rich they're going to be. They're interested in whether they can decrease their health care costs. They're interested in whether they can make our players work more for less. I mean, those are the kind of conversations that we have to work. Um, the, 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 the personal conduct policy um, is one that is very simple for the league to fix. Um, according to neutral 
I mean, it, I, it's, a, it's a weird world where one side doesn't want to have a neutral party deciding conflicts. I mean, where do you see that? Communist countries, but, um, <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, where, where do you see a system where people are resistant to a neutral party deciding issues? It's actually the first time I've asked myself a question, I mean, other than communist dictatorships or banana republics. I can't think of it. Yeah, right. Um, so you have a major role in the 2011 player lockout. Cool. <laughs> a little bit. And uh, in negotiating that collective bargaining agreement. Can you tell us a little bit more about that process? <coughs> yeah, I mean, look, collective bargaining, the reason why employers don't like collective bargaining is, is not because um, um, it, 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 it typically results in, in fairness. They don't like collective bargaining because they don't, I mean, the term collective bargaining is a term that necessarily means that everybody who is a stakeholder has to collectively bargain. If you have something called unilateral bargaining, which is an oxymoron, right? If you have unilateral bargaining, the employers love unilateral bargaining. And we see unilateral bargaining all the time time, right? It's called minimum wage. You come here and work. Well, I'd like to get more than minimum wage. No. That's not collective bargaining. <laughs> right? So, so the collective bargaining process is, is pretty simple. You will either have a bargaining process where both sides come to the table as generally equal parties. Um, or you will have a bargaining session where one party has far more leverage and strength over the, the other. So the, the, the 2011 lockout wasn't collective bargaining. The 2011 lockout was, okay, we don't want to meet the players head to head at the bargaining table because that's a real negotiation. What we'll do is we'll cut off their health insurance. So we had 35 women who were expecting to deliver kids where the National Football League cut off their health insurance. That's leverage, right? And if you cut off a player's health insurance or prevent a player from seeking treatment for the injuries they, got, they had last year, and then ultimately telling players that, okay, you have a three-year career, but we're willing to not play football for one-third of your earning capacity, that's all designed to not engage in collective bargaining. So what you do from our side, and again, you know, one of the great strengths of this university is, um, you know, employing analytical, and, and I'm a big game theorist, how do you check the fact that they've tried to create an unbalanced playing field? So they, were able to secure $4 billion in lockouts from the TV networks. Basically, you talk about unilateral marketing. The National Football League went to uh, NBC, Fox, CBS, uh, and ESPN and said to them, we want each of you, and I'm 
making the numbers easy, we basically want each of you to give us a billion dollars, even if the games aren't played, because we need the four billion dollars from all of you collectively to service the debt on our stadiums while football's not being played. So now you have a four billion dollar war chest to not play football. Win lose. If you have four billion dollars and the other group has two hundred million dollars, it's no right? So, you know, the, the group of lawyers and, and myself sat around one day and tried to come up with a theory of why their securing of the four billion dollars from the networks um, violated the players' rights. And the idea was we're actually um, third-party beneficiaries of those TV contracts, right? So the idea was, and it was just one of those things that, that you know, we thought over over about six, seven months. The analysis was if you're a third party beneficiary of two people making a contract, and they make that contract in a way to disadvantage you, and the cost of that $4 billion in insurance, I mean, the, the TV networks are going to extract some sort of concession from that, we would have reached the benefit of that concession, right? So basically, the owners took money away from the players in order to create their own $4 billion worships. And we sued the National Football League um, in uh, District Court of Minnesota and uh, won. <laughs> so we were able to freeze the league's $4 billion insurance policy, and we went out. Um, and I used to do a lot of insurance law at Latham. We went out and were able to secure the first ever lockout insurance policy. So we bought an insurance policy with our own money that would have paid our players through a year of not playing football. Now you can engage in collective bargaining. So what were some major issues once you got to collective bargaining that had to be worked out? Yeah, I mean, the league had four that they wanted. One, they wanted the players to play 18 games. Uh, like every other employer in America, they wanted to eliminate the, uh, the defined benefit pension plan, you know, and turn it into a defined contribution pension plan, which is another great misnomer. You can put your own money into a pension plan and you get a pension based on your own money. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> instead of a pension plan, you know, that our parents grew up with where employers actually made contributions. So they wanted 18 games, they wanted to eliminate uh, uh, the pension plan. Uh, they wanted to uh, have changed the rookie wage scale where they took the difference in the money that, that didn't go to the top 10 rookies. Um, and their last issue is they wanted players to pay for more upgrades to their state. Which also is a really good idea. Um, so those are the big fights, and that's a, that's what we went into. And and the reason why they engaged in their game strategy to get four billion dollars in lockout policy is all four of those things are what we call uh, technically really really bad things that suck. <laughs> and, and so their their goal of the four billion dollars is nobody's going to agree to those four things, so you have to force them into. So, you know, we beat those things back, thankfully. Um, and then for the players, the big interest was like any other union. What's a union about? Wages, hours, working conditions, and benefits. 
So we had the four or five things in all four of those categories that we thought were really, really important. When it came to wages and hours, um, we wanted to secure our share of revenue. So unlike virtually you know, anybody here until you work for a law firm where you're a partner, where you share in the revenue you know, uh, from, from your efforts, most of us and, and most of the people in America who work for a living don't share in the revenue, right? You just get paid a salary. So employers carve out a share of that revenue um, and they pay you the salary out of it, but the rest of the share of that goes to shareholders. Um, we have a share of revenue deal. So um, we, it was important for us to set a floor on the share of revenue that we would be guaranteed for the length of the deal. And what we saw under the stadium credits issue from the last deal was in 2006, for example, owners, I'm sorry, players contributed about $500 million to the, the construction and upkeep of stadiums in America. By 2009, that $500 million per year had turned into $1.1 billion per year. And, it, and we couldn't stop it because the owners approved the upkeep. They just sent the players the bill. Once again, technically, really, really bad. Um, so the goal there was we're done with this blank check to the owners. We believe that we have an ob obligation to contribute to um, you know, things that enhance revenue, but you know, if, if an owner wanted to put a new scoreboard in a stadium, under the old deal, we couldn't stop it. My problem with a new scoreboard is, explain to me how a new scoreboard is going to increase revenue that's coming to our players. You know, you want to put in new seats, Maybe you want to, to make the tailgate experience better for fans so that they, I get that. But you want to put new big screen TVs in the luxury boxes. I'm thinking that my value add that the players are getting from whether it's a 32 inch or a 32 inch screen, eh, right? So we wanted to get away from that blank check and we did. Um, the other big issue was um, on, on wages and hours was, you know, again, maybe this is just a guy coming in from the outside of football, but, you know, you sit around every day and these sports writers talk about the salary cap, the cap, the cap, the cap, the cap. I, you know, the first question I asked when I got the job was, okay, I, I understand the salary ceiling, how much do they have to spend as a floor? <laughs> and my next question was, okay, well, if there's a ceiling to what the owners can spend and there's no floor to what they can spend, why is that a good thing, right? So in 2009, and again, I spent more time in spreadsheets, um, I won't mention any teams by name, Carolina, <laughs> so in 2009, we saw a, a salary cap increase of approximately nine to ten million dollars per team. Um, a team like the Carolina Panthers spent something like seventy percent of the salary cap. Well, what good is a ceiling 
if a team can spend 70% and there's no obligation for them to spend anything except for this idea that an owner wants to be competitive. Well, if you own the team and fans continue to come to your game, even though your team wasn't good, and you continue to make millions and millions and millions, but you didn't have to spend any more on employers, what are you going to do? A fan would spend the money to get successful. A business person spends the money to get money. Money. Right. So one of the big changes under the new deal is for the length of this deal, the uh, National Football League has to spend 95% of the salary cap in cash. That's huge. So um, our benefits went up. We were able to take care of former players, which was a big issue for uh, our former players to bring their pensions up to, to the current levels. Um, and then the last big part was safety. And um, we did something that was very crazy and, and very novel, and, and I'm willing to take credit for it because it was a brilliant idea. <laughs> um, I actually brought a doctor to our collective bargaining meetings to talk about the health and safety of our players. And it was the first time that we had a physician actually review the rules of how our players engage in contact and what happens when they get hurt. Now, you know, I mean, it, it took a great deal of, you know, Aristotelian logic to come up with that. <laughs> Thankfully, my steeped uh, uh, familiarity with Kant uh, was able to leave me that. It's a common sense move, right? So when we brought our doctor, last story I'll tell you, we brought our doctor to the first negotiation meeting, our medical. And uh, you know, the league was talking about 18 games, and you know, they need to play 18 <coughs> games, and so I had this question, have you guys taken a look at the medical consequences of adding two more games to a schedule where our injury rate is already 100%. <laughs> well, no, D, we haven't, we haven't looked at it, but I'm sure it's not gonna be that big of a difference. How about we ask the medical <laughs> <laughs> So, I, I'm happy to say that, you know, we brought our medical director to those meetings in 2010, when we started negotiations with the league. The National Football League just hired a medical director two months ago. When I took this job, the league's concussion doctor was a rheumatologist. I never get tired of that job. <laughs> but it's true. The head of their concussion committee um, was a rheumatologist. Yeah. 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 So, you know, we made a decision that, you know, for every, you know, anybody here played high school football like, like I did, you know, you mentioned the word two-a-days and this weird shiver tick comes up behind you, you know, you realize what it's like to go through the entire month of August where you're literally banging heads against another dude twice a day, every day for a month. We don't have two-a-days in the National Football League anymore because our neurologist said, if you want to reduce the, the concussions in the National Football League, 
the only thing you can really do is reduce exposure to concussive events. Okay, let's get rid of two days. So that's what we've done. And now, I mean, think about it. You've got, we've got sideline concussion experts called, uh, 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 I think we call them INCS, Independent Neurological Consultants. We have UNCS called Unaffiliated Neurological Consultants who sit in the booth. Um, doctors for the first time can actually use replay, not to see if a freaking ball went out of bounds. They can actually use replay now to go back and see what happened to a player in order to diagnose an injury. So, you know, we've actually moved to this world where, you know, when Roger Goodell, two years ago, called uh, the football field a workplace, I nearly gave everybody in the union a call. <laughs> because now, the National Football League is actually talking about this business like a union talks about this business. And, and we don't believe in the football exception. You know, this idea of, well, you know, the guy got a ding, it's a, what kind of, yeah, it's football. Well, no. I mean, you, you've seen players make the decision now that, that they've had too many concussions, and, and I think that's positive. So we have about five minutes left. Sure. Uh, the theory of the world. What, yeah. <laughs> uh, explain it uh, What advice would you give to all these law students um, yeah. as they go into their career, and Man. are there opportunities in the NFLPA for a young boy? Yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, uh, we, I believe in a, you know, I've already told you I met my wife through an internship, so I'm a big believer in internships. <laughs> <laughs> I just am, because I, I think any opportunity to go into a business where, frankly, you know very little about what it is, the best news, you'll come away, the worst case scenario is you come away with something where you go, eh, I don't want to do that. Um, and I've done plenty of those jobs. Um, but, but to young lawyers coming out, um, there is really... Um, no, uh, uh, nothing fills the gap of, of having an earnest interest in raising the level of your game. So, you know, I don't care whether you're that low-level associate banging out, you know, the 50-state survey on, uh, on some sort of something that no one's ever going to read. Um, um, you know, the idea of honing your craft and frankly, that what we've all chosen to do is actually a profession is really important. And, and that's something that, again, thankful that, that, was, that was taught to me here, but something that I truly didn't appreciate until I was out of law school for about five or six years. And, and this idea of, of, of holding something that we do dear to us, not because it, it, it pays the rent, but because you are all embarking on something tremendous that we still refer to as a profession. And committing yourself to, to excelling in that it is something that um, um, I think is extremely important because I will tell you, as a guy who's had three tremendous careers, I mean, I, I've had three great careers, and each one of them was one where I thought I knew leave. Um, the only thing that matters professionally um, is your personal satisfaction with what you do. And, and I know it sounds easy, you know, now I'm 51 years old, and, you know, you can, you can say these things, but, but, you know, I look back on a few years out of law school, and um, the, the best thing that I 
I enjoyed every part of it, even though a lot of it wasn't easy. And, and committing yourself to raising the level of your profession is something that I'm truly excited about. Great. Makes sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Thank awesome. you so much. Thank you.